Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMPLP broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn building here at 106.5 FM and live streaming wherever you are in the world at forwardradio.org. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the volunteers here at the station. I do a show called Sustainability Now and I'm delighted to be hosting this week's edition of Truth to Power, which is part two of the series we started on last week's show, sharing with you the second annual Community Research Expo put on by the amazing local organization here in Louisville known as Root Cause Research Center. If you want to get with some folks who are doing some good anti-racist work here in our city, well, it's the Root Cause Research Center folks. And actually, they're working statewide and, and have national connections as well. Uh, and the annual Community uh, Research Expo is designed to highlight their Community Research Incubator, which in June 2021, Root Cause Research Center launched this second annual Community Research Incubator with support and training from the center. These three brilliant and determined community researchers were able to develop two compelling and critical research projects that you're going to hear about today on black land dispossession and the role of academia in propping up and protecting policing in Louisville. You can learn more about these folks. You're going to hear from Mario Gardner, Join A, Woodward, and Woody Pryor today. And you can learn more about them and their projects and keep up with these. Some of these are still under development uh, at rootcauseresearch.org. And with no further ado, I'm going to take you back to February 26th and the second annual Community Research Expo right here on Truth to Power. The next person that's going to join us is, uh, well, before we introduce him, I just want to say personally that uh, a lot of you all know me and know that I am from um, Eastern Kentucky. I'm from Robertson County in Eastern Kentucky. I have been away from Eastern Kentucky for a long time and here in Louisville and been working here in Louisville, but I always tried to find my way back, a way, a way to go back and organize where I'm from. And this year, uh, last year, really, we, uh, we worked with the Rowan County Listening Project and Michael Harrington, uh, and it became um, a labor of love. And the relationships that we built out of that, I think I will have the rest of my life. So without further ado, I will introduce Michael Harrington from the Rowan County Listening Project. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. My name is Michael Harrington. I use he, him pronouns. And as Josh said, I'm with the Rowan County Listening Project. Um, we are everyday workers and tenants in northeastern Kentucky. We especially work alongside trailer park residents who are catching hell from landlords and local public officials. Um, we build shared power among all of us who are facing down the barrel of displacement that's caused by the ruling class and their so-called economic development projects. We build tenant power amid the increasingly consolidated um, of corporate ownership of mobile home parks. We knock on doors to invite working families and tenants to get involved, to take action for our futures and seize the power that's rightfully ours and is already in our hands, in our neighborhoods and in our relationships. We build on that power that's already there and work together to organize it. That means we reject and oppose the racist lies and tricks of the ruling class that want us, and especially people like me and who look like me, to point the finger at our black and brown immigrant women and LGBTQ neighbors. 
We know that the finger must always point at the root cause of our suffering. That's the ruling class power structure that eats and breathes and spreads white supremacy and division. That's how it runs. Um, We do this work because our lives depend on it, and we have a whole new world to win. Um, And winning that requires action, so that's what we do. Um, I want to briefly share um, some of the work that we've been able to do this past year um, with the support um, and, and coalition partners with the Root Cause Research Center. In March, so about one year ago, um, 2021, um, a Lexington-based developer named Patrick Madden, in collusion with the city of Moorhead and the Rowan County Fiscal Court, worked together to establish a tax increment financing district that covered an entire trailer park in Round County, Kentucky. You've heard a lot about TIFFs um, on this call, um, and they can feel like a really inaccessible topic for everyday residents and tenants. Um, That's actually by design and on purpose. TIFFs are not that complicated to understand. We're just kept from and and understanding them is hidden from us because the ruling class don't want us to know what they actually are, how they actually function, and how they're being used. What they are are glorified tax schemes that the ruling class um, and their partners in, in local governments and state governments use to steal the homes of poor tenants. That's it. Um, steal the homes and steal the neighborhoods of poor tenants and use luxury tax incentives so that wealthy people can make a whole lot of money from stealing. Um, So um, that happened in northeastern Kentucky, um, a trailer park that had 75 units of affordable housing was targeted by rich developers and their partners in local governments to bulldoze it over and pave the way to put up an unneeded and unnecessary strip mall. The promise was that the developer was going to bring jobs um, so that um, he needed that land and it no longer needed to be used to house um, many affordable housing units. So the residents were told without um, warning and a ton of misinformation to get the hell out of Dodge because the bulldozers are coming. Um, So where do you go when something like that happens um, to your neighborhood? There's no affordable housing left anywhere um, in Rowan County. Um, Tenants from from the mobile home park were used to paying $125 a month in lot rent. Um, small apartments in Rowan County um, can cost you $900 a month um, for rent. Um, that's a far cry from $125. The slate um, and fleet of affordable housing um, is shrinking due to these root causes that we've mentioned before. Um, and so I just kind of want to bring in a voice of one of the tenants, Mindy Davenport, who is um, a former resident of the North Fork Mobile Home Park. We were able to do a lot of research because Root Cause Research Center supported us and said, you all have everything that you need to understand these TIFFs. Um, they're, not, they're not complicated because you're not smart um, or anything like that. It's hidden from you on purpose. So Josh is going to share screen um, so that we can bring in a voice of one of the residents reflecting on the research that she did pouring through this, um, this TIFF language document. Um, 
So give us just one second as we pull that up. Um, Mindy from Eastern Kentucky and Round County says, um, this is the dynamic that's happening. Who is pursuing these TIFs and who are being targeted by these TIFs? Um, we, meaning the tenants of North Fork, have always worked. Those people, public officials and developers, have never worked for what they have. Our mayor has never dug a ditch, cleaned a house, cleaned a toilet, or whatever, for minimum wage to raise her kids. She had her money handed to her. But I've worked three jobs for years and years and years to raise my kid, and they call me the blight? No, I'm not the blight. They're the blight. Um, over the course of this campaign, we learned that um, being called a blight um, not only is very, very painful, um, very painful experience to go through, but that it's also used strategically by developers and public officials to target neighborhoods in order to wipe them out, to make the way for development projects or other schemes that target those neighborhoods. Um, so, I, like I said, we worked on this campaign um, with deep, deep solidarity and support um, with our, our partners at the Root Cause Research Center um, and others. And I just want to briefly share, because I know we're getting close to time, some of the organizing lessons that we learned over the past year and lessons that we're going to apply as we continue our work for 2022. Um, the first thing is, when a neighborhood is facing a really hard time, organized power makes all the difference. But how do you build organized power when there's just tears on tears on tears because what you're going through is really hard? Um, that's the reality, right? This work is, is hard to do and you're trying to do it amid some of the most trying times of your life. So what we would do is we would rely heavily on music and on art. Every time we would have an organizing meeting to plan our next steps, every time we would have a barbecue and a cookout just to lift our spirits up amid some really tough times, we would sing songs together. Um, Ashley Woodard Henderson, um, a co-director of the Highlander and Research and Education Center in East Tennessee, um, reminds us that the reason that we sing together is because it actually helps us win together. Um, we breathe and we sing together because it helps us build revolutionary struggle together. And we're not going to be able to win that struggle if we're not able to sing together. Um, so we pulled in so much life and spirit affirming song and art. want to share, um, you know, when times are hard, you can be very creative to, to put your voice um, and use your voice in a way um, by expressing your creativity. So we had tons of folks creating art, um, protest signs, chants, um, all of that kind of creative energy helped sustain us while we were trying to do the work and while we were taking direct action. And it's meant a lot to us to kind of keep our spirits whole um, as we went throughout the entirety of last year. Um, another thing that we learned is about what is it like for everyday folks to work so closely with the press, right? Tons of giant press outlets and stuff wanted to, to hear stories. Um, and it's actually incredibly rare for Eastern Kentuckians and uh, just like as many other folks um, to be able to share our stories in a way that give us dignity, right? Stories are told about Eastern Kentuckians, but we're rarely ever past the mic to tell our own stories in our own ways owning those stories 
stories in a way that gives us our dignity. We know that we're dignified. We know that we have that. Um, we're denied the opportunity to have the mic in order to claim it. Um, so we we use the press to spotlight a lot of our direct actions targeting the developer, Patrick Madden, as well as local public officials. Um, and when we had that mic, we insisted that we used it in a way that, that displayed our power and our dignity. And it made us stronger because of that. Another thing that we learned is you you reach for many tools that are in your toolbox. One tool that we reach for is suing the city of Moorhead. We filed a lawsuit um, against the city of Moorhead for their role um, in um, paving the way for the tax incentives that led to stealing homes and stealing a neighborhood. Um, we are um, appealing um, rulings in court. We'll fight that out in court along the way. But I want to emphasize that winning these things is not a function of winning them in court. You use them as a tool. What determines whether you win or lose is not what a judge says. Judges have no power over you. The question that determines whether you win or lose is, do you build organizing power, independent power? So that's what we're doing while the court case is making its way through. Um, and judges and, and attorneys are talking about those things. It's very important. We're glad that that work is happening. None of that has diverted us from building together organized power of tenants. Um, I also want to <clears throat> say something that for me that I learned, I've been organizing for a while, and, and sometimes it's been hard for me to see the value in, in certain practices, right? Um, to, to keep an organizing group together for the long haul. Um, this past year was really kind of a come to come to Jesus moment for me where I had to learn that healing circles, um, supportive practices, being in a space together to give each other hugs, just sitting there and listening to each other while we cry and having those spaces for healing. That's the only way that we can sustain ourselves in order to do this. And it's actually a vital part of organizing. So we create organizing meetings and spaces that have deep practices of mutual support and healing within them because there wasn't any other way that we could do the work that we did last year without them. Um, and then finally, I, I just want to say over the course of taking on a developer and taking on local public officials and their power, we realized that we were building power too um, and taking direct actions, right? Um, but you, it's important to remember in the middle of a campaign that you don't build power in order to sit on it and just have it. You build power in order to exercise power, um, right? So as you grow in your strength, as you grow in your numbers, you have to flex um, and, and put that power that you've built into motion and into action. So you consistently take actions um, that increase your power along the way. Don't build power to sit on it, build power to exercise it. Um, then finally, I'll just kind of want to leave you with um, the reason that we do the work that we do with the Rowan County Listening Project is to build a base of working people, um, a strong base of growing numbers of people that have everything to win and nothing to lose. Um, and these, what I've described on taking the things that we did to take on developers, these are the kinds of things that you can do when you build a powerful base that the ruling class can't resist. Um, so at Round County Listening Project, we believe like what Mary Marcy, an industrial workers of the world organizer said in 1911, that we learn to fight by fighting. 
um, we know that the Root Cause Research Center moves in that way too, um, which is why we look forward to growing together um, a deepening relationship over the course of the next year, and we're honored to be here. Um, you can check out the Round County Listening Project on Facebook, Round County Listening Project, and on Instagram, Round County Listening Project. Pleasure to be here. I want to take a moment to really thank every single person who presented, every partner, every individual who, who's who's here that that is a part of the fight that is pushed back. Um, thank you. Is every time we have these moments where uh, where we're talking about not only the work but we're building a memory of struggle as well as a memory of that resistance. And without that memory, how are we supposed to continue to expand our possibilities? especially with all the turmoil that goes on in the world, all the things that we have to hold from time to time. We forget so much of what this work is and, and what, what it can mean when we all collectively work together, building this power. I just want to thank y'all. And I feel just not only so rallied, you know, and rejuvenated spirit, refreshed, <laughs> uh, but just incredibly honored to, to, to work with y'all, to know you, to, to be able to hear these words today. Just thank you. Just want to take a moment to say thank you. And now I have the privilege of also introducing our featured cohort, the 2021 Community Researchers. So as I said earlier, this is, this is nine months in the making, uh, but these projects are just the tip iceberg. Uh, the, the two projects that came out of this are part of ongoing series. Uh, one has more than one content that we'll share online next week, as well as we'll share that through email. We'll be playing one of those episodes today. And the other one, we have a, a great segment to show you. And again, it's just the beginning of greater things, more things growing on this research. So we'll be sharing out the content uh, next week, the links. But for folks who are attending or viewing this live, uh, you are going to be the first people to experience this. You get first view, and we're excited to share this moment with you. First up, there's Joyne Woodard. She is a brilliant researcher, media maker, and mother of three. Inspired to expose truths hidden from the Black community, she first began experimenting with data in a cohort that examined and investigated ties between foreclosure data, land bank data, and data features of economic mobility for the West Louisville area. Her studies and passion for research activism led her to apply for the Community Research Incubator, where she partnered with Woody Pryor to create Out of the Woods. It's a podcast. Out of the Woods is a podcast series that investigates the role of academia in propping up and protecting policing in Louisville, Kentucky. Up next is Woody Pryor. Woody Pryor is a working class scholar, musician, and loving brother, husband, and father of three beautiful sons. His family is the joy of his life. He is passionate about the Black community and centers reparations as a theory of change in his scholarship. As a two-time community researcher at the Root Cause Research Center, he has produced work that has addressed the myths within the racial wealth gap, as well as this podcast series, Out of the Woods, which again is a series that is that was created by both Woody and Joyne Woodard, and the series investigates the role of academia in propping up and protecting policing. Without further ado, I'm gonna play Out of the Woods, episode two. You are now listening to Out of the Woods, where we invite you to step into the darkness and into the light. 
series will be focusing on how police data is used and how it is in the end destroying communities. So basically, we have been going through all of this information to get down to one of the major key players in the city of Louisville, who is playing both sides. Not only are they on the side of the police to produce data, but she is also on the side of academics with the production of studies that is taken from this data. She needs no introduction. She is highly networked. She has influence within local, statewide, national, and international law enforcement. She continues to impact our communities with her incredulous Thanks. Deborah Keeley is a professor and associate dean in UofL's Justice Administration Department, and she's working on those studies and has been for a few years now. Deb, good to see you. It's nice to see you, Mark. This was back in, what, 20, 2017 with UofL Today? It's UofL Today on 93.9 The Bill. Here's your host, Mark Hebert. In the beginning, the guy gives the introduction about how UofL does a lot of research for LMPD. Uh, so the local police department has contracted with the University of Louisville, specifically you, uh, to do some studies for them. What are these studies that you're working on for the LMPD and the city of Louisville? Well, I work on two sets of studies. Uh, one is a citizen's attitude survey. It's an assessment of how, basically how citizens in Louisville feel about the quality of police services as they are delivered in their neighborhoods. And then Secondly, I analyze vehicle stops data to assess the potential for biased policing. Okay. Well, let's talk about the survey of citizens first off. What, what was the survey? How many folks did you survey? What did you find? Okay. Well, first of all, this is, I would mention that, that citizens' attitude surveys are like a standard instrument these days in law enforcement. It's a management tool so that they can adjust their services if necessary. Um, we surveyed, it's a phone survey. We surveyed 2,400 individuals, random phone calls to landlords lines, cell lines. The time frame in between where they were calling was in the afternoon. Majority of the people that are home during those times are older people. We already know majority of the people who answered their phones, um, older, older white women. That's basically who, who did the interview. And middle class people do have more free time than those who work and then have to come home and get their house together with their children, you know, come home and make dinner. Regular working class people don't have time to constantly be answering a phone for a silly survey. And then what she felt to even mention is that there were certain stuff that they would stop the survey and be like, oh, you're not a good candidate for it. So she didn't even mention that even in her radio interview. Um, we, we like to have an equal number of representatives from each dis division. So we collect 300 responses from each division. How many divisions are there? There are eight divisions. Okay. And, and the, reason that we, the reason that we try to get an equal number of responses from each division is that the divisions have differing numbers of individuals in that division. And we didn't want the more populated divisions to have more input into the survey than those that were less populated. So. 
So she called 300 people from each area because she didn't want to have a bias for more populated areas, which that automatically creates a bias. She knows statistics, so she should have had it broken down to more people coming from the more populated areas. Because, of course, you have like people out in the suburbs. Come on. They are going to talk very highly of the police and, of course, have a, a, a sense of security and safety because they're not the ones being harassed. They probably have police in their family and things like that. So they are going to talk very highly of the police. So the survey of the local police, of the attitudes towards local police, you found what? Actually, we find what we have found consistently since 2012 and, and uh, what we found when I did it under our prior uh, police chief in 2005, 6 and 7 is that public's attitudes towards police services in our community are very positive. Are you surprised? Um, well, you know, I, I've, I've been surprised that there hasn't been a change since 2012, you know, because of Ferguson and all of the incidents that have happened uh, across the United States and, and also because of all of the media attention to the homicide rate in Louisville. And so what we found is that is that the citizens are still consistently positive. So, I mean, it seems to me that our police are doing something right. Uh, apparently. Um, <laughs> well, because uh, one of the numbers that uh, you sent me, that, uh, or there was in the survey, 53% of the folks surveyed were very satisfied, 37% somewhat satisfied with police services. So that's 90% exactly. of the people in Metro Louisville are basically happy with the police services. Exactly. And and so one of the problems is if, is if I try to analyze, like, why people are unhappy. I don't have enough respondents to really get a good statistical. Only 10% of them are unhappy. You know, so, um, yeah. And and I used to call, there are a series of questions about specifically how are the police doing in terms of crime prevention, helping victims, um, keeping order on the streets, help being helpful to citizens and being fair to citizens. And, and, and these are, these are so high that there's no variability. I mean, 95% mm-hmm. believe that the police are fair to citizens and um, 90% believe that they're keeping good order on the streets. So, Okay. Uh, we're talking with Deborah Keeling, who's a professor and associate dean in the uh, College of Arts and Sciences and Justice Administration Department at UofL. And she's done some work for the police department, surveying local citizens in a couple different areas. For me, for the study, the same thing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's absolutely nothing. Yeah. The study stays the same, but yet black drivers in Louisville are 60% more likely to be stopped compared to white drivers. Black motorists were searched 12% of the time compared with the 4% of the time of white drivers. Data shows the police found contraband in 70% of their searches of whites versus only 41 for African-Americans. But from 2010 to 2019, black residents make up nearly 21% of Louisville's population, but involved almost 50% of the use of force and incidents. Like, I mean, come on. But everybody's happy though, except for this small percent. But then when you look at the makeup of the small percent, what do, you know, what are we, what are we doing? And then also she goes on to say that African-Americans are more critical of the police and police presence. But yeah, because even with her talking about Ferguson and things like that, I can go back to the early 2000s where the police was still like killing people here in, in Kentucky. Picture it. The year is 1999. The city is Louisville. Everybody is in an uproar. The city three years prior had already secured grant money to to finally destroy Louisville's public housing complexes. The whole city is worried. Where would they put these people? And if they would fall into their neighborhoods and what type of chaos and crime they would bring. Meanwhile, residents of these complexes are distraught and are in despair for their uncertain future. Will they be able to return? 
Where were they going to then? Would they be able to even move into other housing complexes? Where would their children attend school? Or even if they had the necessary resources to move? June 1999. Oh no, shots fired. 22 bullets rang out, nine of which strike Desmond Rudolph, leaving him lingering in misery for days. Officially charged and case dismissed because the defendant is deceased. Listen to this segment from New York Times released in 2014. He told me at age 12, he said, I know I'm how I'm going to die, and I'm not scared to die. I said, Desmond, how are you going to die? He said, the police going to kill me. Sherry Rudolph's son, Desmond, started stealing cars when he was in middle school. In May of 1999, the 18-year-old was fleeing from police in a stolen truck through this West End alley. Although he was unarmed, two police officers fired 22 rounds at him. In self-defense, they said. The day he died, they charged him with attempt murder. And then they said, deceased, deceased. <laughs> a few months later, when a grand jury decided not to indict the officers, the city remained calm. But the following March, the police department awarded medals of honor to the two officers for their conduct during the incident. To add insult to injury, the police chief a year later awards those same officers service awards for the way they handled the situation. In response to the outcry, the mayor fired the police chief. Hundreds of police officers flooded the streets to protest the firing. Tensions rose between the predominantly white police force and the black community in the West End. The police chief is fired and then replaced with Robert White which for me was just another black face for a still corrupt department. Black residents also took to the streets in protest. 2004, shots are fired again. This time, three shots in the back that killed Michael Newby, an unarmed team whom all witnesses stated he was trying to flee police in an alleged drug investigation. Bam, the gavel sounds. The officer is acquitted on all charges. From murder to acquittal in just eight short months, this is just two of the seven people that were killed by LMPD during this time frame. Not only after this, tensions between police and the black community only continue to get worse. And the president of the Louisville Fraternal Order of Police, Dave Mutchler, puts Louisville citizens on notice when he publicly released a threatening letter to those speaking out against police brutality. Head of the union representing Louisville's police officers is standing behind the words that he wrote, which have caused some to call for him to step down. Dave Mutchler wrote the open letter in response to the community's reaction to a deadly officer-involved shooting. An eight-paragraph letter written by River City FOP President Dave Mutchler has some people extremely upset. In the letter, Mutchler wrote, quote, to the sensationalists, race baiters, and liars, we are done with you. He went on to say... If your behavior or untruths causes harm to us or the public, we will make every attempt to have you investigated, charged, and prosecuted at the local, state, or federal level. Our goal is for the criminal element to say to themselves, it would be much easier for us to go somewhere else and commit crimes. Uh, and when that happens, then Louisville becomes a safer community. So the survey of the local police, of the attitudes towards local police, you found what? Actually, we find what we have found consistently since 2012 and, and uh, what we found when I did it under our prior uh, police chief in 2005, 6, and 7 is that 
public's attitudes towards police services in our community are very positive. Between the police claiming more black bodies, protests against police brutality, threats from LMPD, sexual allegations in the Explorer program, to have Deborah Keeling, a University of Louisville professor, director of their Justice Department, and who sits on the board of the Southern Police Institute, whom I might add trains and educates police officers all over the North and South. Do a survey on how satisfied Louisvillians are with LMPD and have a 95% satisfaction. It's just a botched recon mission, a cover-up, academic gaslighting, academic complicity with white supremacy to squander and erase experiences of poor and working class black people by those who swore to protect and serve and uphold truth and justice. Her work erases their reality. She chose to ignore a lot of evidence in her methodology. A report that when you try to find it, all links are broken. But before the link could be broken, the survey itself was broken from the beginning. You are listening to Out of the Woods, where we invite you to step out of the darkness and into the light. All right. So that was episode two. Episode two of Out of the Woods. We'll be sharing links to both episode one and episode two on the website, as well as uh, via email to folks who registered for this event. The folks who are attending, we have your email and we'll make sure you get them. This content is hot. (laughs) Yes. Next up, we have Mariel Gardner. Mariel Gardner is an urban farmer at Fifth Element Farms, aka Apocalyptic Acres. And she is a passionate scholar. As a researcher, she is most interested in Black land dispossession and its connection to the history of racial violence in Kentucky. She is also both a fierce and charming community organizer with the Historically Black Neighborhood Assembly. She is a powerful force. Through her work with the Community Research Incubator and upcoming fellowship with RCRC, she has begun to outline and produce a large body of knowledge in new and creative ways. All right. Hold on to your seats. Eight generations and 132 years ago, the fifth element was introduced to your great, 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 great grandmothers, Judith Casey and Flora Major, on the evening after their children, Tom and Julia Wed. A storm furious and eager with ruin called across Christian County. Its numerous lightning strikes disfigured fields from Pembroke to St. Elmo, Lafayette to Hopkinsville. While surveying the Lafayette farm owned by Tom for damages, Judith and Flora find a tree alive with electricity guarded by Elohim, the Ananuki ambassador. No taller than a wagon wheel, their pale green skin was haloed by a shimmering yellow glow. Elohim's hands were plentiful, an additional two sets jutting out of their torso and hips. Three red almond-shaped eyes settled on Flora and Judith, relaxing their battle-like stance. Elohim explained, Be not afraid. I am Elohim of the Ananuki Freedom Colony. Lionel White, destroyer of species, cultivator of despair, returned to Earth disguised as lightning, bringing another legion of her speculators, intent on continuing her reign of terror. Physically, they appear to be human, cloaking themselves in whiteness to infiltrate and assume trustworthy positions in your society. 
She extracts resources above and beneath your soil, rapidly weakening your planet's vitality. The gas is produced by your planet as it dies, maintain her life force, and she uses what you value most to speed the disease. Earth's humans have based their entire social order on whiteness and wealth, using land and labor to bolster both. White and the speculators are skilled hypnotists with the ability to consign memories to oblivion, making it easier to reshape history and maintain power. The only way to defeat her is for your memories to advance through time, so your descendants can recognize her tactics and expose her evil strategy. This piece of the fifth element will allow you to enter the dreams of those in your bloodline. Tell them your stories, and when they are ready, they will free themselves. But be warned, the fifth element is one resource which Lina must never possess. Its power in her hands will imprison planets and galaxies beyond this plane, and none of us can prepare for the bevy of pain Lina White will force upon us if she controls the fifth element. While Earth is a nurturing home for her and the speculators, the Ananuki find it difficult to survive here. Your atmosphere diminishes our strength. We cannot stay long, but we will return often. Flora and Judith first visited my brother Milton and I after the death of our great-grandfather James Jones, who was the husband of Judith and Flora's great-granddaughter Rosetta. Upon his passing, we received an inscribed box containing two spherical triangles made of crystal, each laced between a worn piece of twine. That night, we both dreamed of Kentucky just after the Civil War. Over time, the dreams became so recurrent, we could recite the story by heart. Eighteen seventy-one started with violence when a mob of seventeen white men from the Henry and Shelby County Ku Klux chapters, armed with double-barrel shotguns, terrorized the black population of Stamping Ground and Watkinsville in Scott County. Unable to find William Blackburn at his barbershop in Stamping Ground, they continued their bloodthirsty spree until they encountered Cupid, an elderly shoemaker, and murdered him in his home. Undeterred, they continue their march to Watkinsville, where they are met with force. Black neighbors fight back, kill one of the aggressors, and the invaders eventually retreat. Unsure of when the clan might return, they leave their homes and seek asylum in Frankfurt, just as the Kentucky General Assembly is introducing a Ku Klux bill. Kentucky and the rest of the southern states are experiencing numerous acts of terrorism at the hands of groups of masked men who are just impossible to identify, despite Black folks pointing fingers and naming names. There are two proposals for the bill. Senator Chenoweth's version would use a $500,000 budget to create a governor-appointed task force to root out offenders and prosecute them in accordance with state law. Senator Spalding's version adds more detail about premeditation and assigns mandatory penalties for offenders and accomplices ranging from fines and jail time to death. Spalding's task force budget is $25,000, and the legislature fights over the budget amount, eventually reducing it to $10,000. All the while, Governor Stevenson is preparing to resign not in protest because the legislature can't get it together enough to protect the lives of the laborers who created their fortunes, 
but to become a U.S. Senator and further the Bourbon Democrat agenda on reconstruction, which resolved that states should be able to decide their own approach to building back better after the Civil War. It's an old song. When it comes to Black people, states' rights ain't where it's at nor where it's ever been. Bourbon Democrats are opposed by radical Republicans. Radicals are abolitionists prior to the war with a sprinkle of socialism and don't believe ex-Confederates should assume positions in the post-war government. The Kentucky General Assembly fails to pass the Ku Klux Klan bill during this session, probably because members of the Klan are elected to the House and Senate. Like, what kind of police do you call on the police? Who watches the watchmen? They do, however, pass legislation permitting us to testify in court, which could prove helpful in prosecuting Klan members. But Malia, you know it won't. <laughs> Later in January, William Gibson became the mail agent for the Louisville, Frankfurt, and Lexington mail route. Previously, he worked the Lebanon route, becoming the first black mail agent in the Commonwealth. By the second trip on his new route, the Klan attacked him at North Benson train station in Franklin County and threatened that if he didn't resign, he would be dealt with. Gibson takes a few days off and upon returning to work is provided with 10 U.S. Marshals for protection. Now word on the street is that the Klan can easily overtake Gibson's guard as their numbers greatly exceed the Marshals. Mail continues to run without incident until March 3rd when the Postmaster General suspends the service. And I'm telling you, people are bothered. Folks want their mail quickly. Stagecoach delivery is much slower than the train delivery and blame for the inconvenience is hurled everywhere. The issue becomes super political. Democrats blame Republican President Grant for influencing the Postmaster General to shut the mail service down. And Grant is like, these fools are interfering with mail all over the South. Y'all ain't trying to stop them because you're sipping too much bourbon and don't think the Klan is a problem. So I'm going to do what I got to do. Kentucky becomes one of foster children for the forthcoming federal Ku Klux Klan bill to protect us from white domestic terrorists retaliating for losing the Civil War, their land, and wealth. The previously unpaid workforce now demands compensation, lowering profits. And many Confederates are driven out of the South during and after the war, leaving their acreage behind. I do declare the Southern way of life is changing. The white elite class is bitter and uses the Klan to regulate with vigilante violence. Governor, now Senator Stevenson, a Confederate sympathizer who doesn't even fight in the war, goes before the U.S. Senate saying Mr. Gibson was unqualified for the position. A white man should have been hired. And the story of the Ku Klux attacking Gibson was an exaggeration. He assures the chamber that when the facts come out, a Republican will be responsible and the entire ordeal will boil down to political trickery because the Klan doesn't even exist in Kentucky. Senator Sherman from Ohio shuts Stevenson down like his name is Rand Paul, citing an incident where the Ku Klux break a man out of jail who had been in prison for killing a black man in Frankfurt while Stevenson is governor. Senator Sherman should have also mentioned the attack on February 20th of former male agent, Civil War veteran, and blacksmith Darius Faulkner. Faulkner owned his home in Estill County and hosted Reverend Anderson Crawford from Berea College there. 
Berea in neighboring Madison County is continuing to create a racially mixed community by diversifying the college's ministry, academic programs, and living quarters. Reverend Crawford, while out checking on his horse, is met with gunfire. He retreats back into the home where Faulkner and William Johnson begin to fire back at their assailants. David Athey, who Faulkner once believed to be a friend and radical, along with Granville Caddy, are arrested for the crime. Faulkner testifies at the trial, but the men are still acquitted. Berea is an abolitionist college, and these folks are traveling the state recruiting blacks to attend the school, and the Estill County Klan, they ain't about that life. Racial mixing is a good way to build power, but it's a dangerous prospect for affluent power holders. The Ku Klux attack Mr. Adams, a white man, for living in a home with blacks and for suggesting that he'd rather his sister marry a black person than a rebel. Thomas Gilbert, a leader of the Klan, organizes 40 men to send a message to Mr. Adams. They wrestle that man out of his bed in the middle of the night and pistol whip him. The revolver accidentally discharges, injuring one of the Klansmen. But when they get Mr. Adams outside, each of the men take turns whipping him, and he receives 82 lashes from whips made from surrounding tree branches. There seems to be no reprieve for us or our comrades. So black Kentuckians from the hood to the holler petitioned the state and federal legislatures for policy driven protections by detailing 199 episodes of racial violence in the Commonwealth. On April 20th, 1871, President Grant signed the Ku Klux Klan Act protecting the civil and political liberties guaranteed to us by the 14th Amendment. Nevertheless, the Klan persists, forcibly recruiting men to join their brigade. Notices are sent to white folks giving them the options to leave the county, join up, or catch hands. Women are, women are not absolved. Mrs. Woodward, a white woman who spoke out against the Powell County group, was taken to the woods and beaten. Thomas Payne, a white Knox County native, received notices from the Klan at his job in the mines of Fitchburg. The written threats continue for months and start showing up at his home, so he leaves for two months. When he returns, the threats start again, and some nights later, he overhears Klan leader Thomas Gilbert order 10 men to surround and search his home. Payne escapes, and the next day confronts Gilbert. And Gilbert's like, nah, bro, it wasn't me. Four times word reaches pain that the Klan will give him one last chance. He can join them or leave Estel County. He decides to join up and act as an informant to get back at the band for the terror they've imposed upon him. Once initiated into the band of sycophants, Payne learns that Estel County is infested with Klan activity. There are companies in Cobb Mountain, Fitchburg, Scotts Landing, Hardrick's Creek, the Estel Furnace, and at each locality throughout the county. He discovers State Senator Harrison Cockrell is the head and front of the organization in the counties of Estel, Lee, Wolf, and Breathitt. Gilbert assures Payne that Cockrell's seat in government will protect them should they be apprehended. Senator Cockrell is powerful, but reckless. His brother Elijah is a county judge and their combined power makes them invincible. I mean, dude still serves in the Senate after catching bodies on election day. He and his friends murdered John Ross, 
James Dugan and R.S. Sullivan at the voting precinct, and they're never arrested or prosecuted. If it's this easy for a murderous white supremacist to infiltrate the Capitol and undermine democracy, white speculators certainly aren't having a problem. A member of the Kentucky State Senate from 1863 to 1865, and again from 1869 to 1873, Cockrell is a member of the Agriculture and Manufacturing Committee. He and the state of Kentucky need mining in his home county of Estill to be successful to appease the furnace's wealthy investors and support the public. Estill's been trying to get investment in the furnace for a minute, searching high and low, far and wide. They find Fred Fitch right up the street in Lexington. Fred pours so much money into Red River Ironworks that it is soon expected to be the most profitable enterprise in the state. Securing emerging white wealth while dealing with the changing face of Southern life, Senator Cockrell must ensure that the money keeps flowing. In a surprise to no one, he uses his militia of terrorists to carry out his wishes. Stay tuned for part two of Operation 2052, The Speculator Strikes Back, where Malia learns her assignment to Jones's move out of Christian County and One West, Steve Poe, and Craig Greenberg make a land grab to take the West End back. All right. I'll pass it on to you, Josh. Thank you all so much for joining us. I really appreciate the community researchers and all the time they put into this. Both of the works that you saw today were small pieces of much larger works. Mariel's will be uh, coming out in episodes and will culminate in a larger project of documenting the history of racial violence in Kentucky. And as Jessica said, Mir uh, Woody's and Joy Ace project will turn into a podcast. And so with that, we're pretty good on time. Uh, I'm going to make some closing remarks, but before I do that, um, we're going to open it up to Q&A. And so if you have community, if you have questions for the panelists or the community researchers, please ask them. We do want to um, not center elected officials in this space. So I know there are a lot of questions for Jacory about the ordinance and y'all Jacory is a public servant who has a large platform and we'll be hosting town halls all over the city. So we want to make sure we center our uh, comrades in the space and not Jacory. And I think Jacory is at the park with his child anyway. So I don't think that's a problem. I do see a question. Well, I think this was in regards to Jacory's, uh, I think it was in regards to the historically black neighborhoods ordinance. And uh, I do want to say about that ordinance, that ordinance, uh, some of the, some of that ordinance was inspired by the work of Dr. Andrea Roberts at Texas A&M who's working on the Texas Freedom Colonies project down there. So we want to make sure we acknowledge uh, her work in creating that. I do not think that there is another ordinance like that in the country. Um, another question we had was how do we create mixed income neighborhoods? And I'm going to take that one um, just so we're clear on what we do and what our self-interests are. We've knocked on a lot of doors of the past two years, um, a lot of doors of poor people. I have never heard, I've never knocked on a poor person's door and heard them say that they want rich people to come live next to them, that that's really a problem. What we hear from people is that they want to stay in their homes. And so that's what we prioritize. When you unpack a lot of the rhetoric around mixed income neighborhoods and, 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 and that sort of narrative and that sort of ideology, you usually find that there are real estate interests pushing that narrative in some way. Martina, you had a question. 
Actually, I, I had a remark, Josh. The issue of mixed-income neighborhoods, as you say, has been co-opted for political purposes and for purposes of power. However, those of us who are old enough do remember growing up in neighborhoods where you had a variety of people there. Your teachers lived in the neighborhood, the doctor lived in the neighborhood, and so those days are long past. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is important to, to point out that it's become sort of a sexy term that policymakers use to justify grant getting and, and other activities. Where are the opportunities that you see? Um, I know you live in Louisville and you've talked about your Eastern Kentucky roots where folks out in Eastern Kentucky and folks in Louisville, um, where there's spaces where we can come together, share some space together, work on some things together so that we can continue building um, on those relationships from the from the city to the to out in Eastern Kentucky, rural Western Kentucky in those areas. Michael, were you addressing that to Jessica and I, or just anyone? Uh, any, any, anyone who, who has thoughts about how we can continue to work together across the geography? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead, and we've talked about this a little bit, Michael. I, I, think what, I think what the goal here for us is, and, and what we see a lot with the rural organizing, is to build up separate bases at first. As we build up those bases, win local fights and build power locally, then we start connecting with each other and, and really try to build that statewide cross-racial solidarity for poor working class people and poor working class tenants specifically around housing. I think that's, that's the goal. And build, yeah, build power through our shared interest in social housing. Uh, here is a really good question from Mariel. What happened to Senator Cockrell? Well, let me first say that I chose Estill County for my research um, because I participated in the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange. Um, and we visited Estill County and a bunch of us from Louisville asked, well, what happened to all the black people in Estill County? Why do no black people live here? And they didn't know. So I wanted to find out what happened to us in that space. Um, and Senator Cockrell um, uses the Klan um, to raid a camp of black workers who had moved to the area um, for work in the mine. And um, he starts he plans this raid on all of them and um, exterminates, um, displaces 400 uh, black families from Estill County. So that is what happens to him. Next episode. That's the next episode. Thank you, Muriel. And Angela had a really good question in response to my answer to Michael. It's like, why do we have to wait? Why can't we connect and build across the state from the get-go? And I think that might, I think that might, that question might require a meeting. We can, if we're ready. Um, when you all think we're ready and we think we're ready, we, and I think we've been planting the seeds for that now, but I know there are a lot of local battles to win before we can scale up. And if, and if anybody else wants to chime in on that too, go for it. Yeah, I think a good example of that, this is why I was curious, was um, we, were, we talked about TIFFs when I was talking about work in Rowan County. That work was informed by work that happened in Louisville around TIFFs, right? What are these things? How are they used and stuff like that? So I kind of, in the spirit of what you, were, what you and Jessica were offering, was kind of like, well, you need to have work on the table that we can make the connections with right if i'm just like out here but i'm not working on anything what what do i connect that's that's a good point and we don't have meetings just for the sake of having a meeting you know the point of a meeting is is to move work and so you know i guess the answer to the question really is that we already are we're communicating but at, you know if you bring a problem to jessica and i or bring a fight to jessica and i and we have capacity and it's aligned with our self-interest we're going to support that fight if it you know all over the state so 
start a fight. That's the answer. <laughs> One thing I think we can do statewide right now is to watch our state legislature and be ready to let each other know issues of concern with the bills that they're coming up with. We do this, MPP does this every year. And then also watch the HBNA website. Just kind of cruise around and see what's happening. There's a lot going on already, and we're already on some levels working towards the same aims. But watch that legislature, folks. All right, y'all. Well, if there are no other questions, I'm going to, I really want to deeply thank Jerome Scott and our comrades who presented. When I was in my early 20s, I read the book, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, by, uh, that documented the work of the revolutionary black workers and Jerome Scott. And that book had a really deep impact on me, especially that there are alternatives to this sort of standard liberal electoral organizing that we see, and that most revolutionary activity actually happens outside the voting booth. And as I already said, we really want to thank Clove the West and Eastern Kentucky Mutual Aid for their work. They do great work, you all. And so if anyone feels compelled to donate, like we said, we love to appreciate donations, but please prioritize the mutual aid groups uh, in your donations. Their work supports our work. Thank you, Muriel, Woody, and Joyne for your commitment, your creativity, and your perseverance. We started the community research program because we think poor and working class people should control the means of production for knowledge and data in their communities, and you all brought that idea to life. These community research projects this year are deeply reflective of these folks' self-interest and their commitment to engaging in scholarship and building power in their communities. They are pissed off. And they are tired of seeing developers and politicians subsidize their own displacement while police terrorize their communities. I do want to say, as Jerome mentioned also, and some other people mentioned, all of our organizing takes place within the context of January 6, 2021, and the rise of fascist movements around the world. We know exactly what we're fighting against. We're very fortunate to be paid organizers, and we do not take that lightly. And we work to develop our practice, and we promise not to waste time on any initiative, meeting, or practice that is not directly aligned with our self-interest as welfare class and working class people. I do also want to say that we are organizers. We are not activists. That means that our work is relational. It's not transactional. We organize to agitate to get our desired outcomes for our people. The community research program is one way that we build power. We build power when we develop deep relationships around revolutionary study. We build power when we produce knowledge on top of those relationships, we build even more power. So if you're interested in building power for you and your people through research, please join us. The applications for next year's research incubator are up on the website and we'll be taking those in the next couple of months. There's no way we could possibly thank all the people who need to be thanked for their help over the past year or for the folks who influenced or inspired us. But I just personally really want to thank Talisha Wilson and Jessica Bellamy for the brilliance, principles, and com their commitment to revolutionary work. I work alongside some dope-ass women, y'all, and it's been a privilege to organize around them. This is what we're about. This is what we do, and we're not going to stop. I want to say in closing that our people deserve to win, and we thank y'all for sharing this space with us. And that was Josh Poe from the Root Cause Research Center here in Louisville wrapping up the second annual Community Research Expo held online just a couple weeks ago on February 26th. And we were so delighted to bring it all to you in this second part. Again, you can hear the first part of the program on last week's Truth to Power. And you can find all of our local programs archived for you at forwardradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Truth to Power. We look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well, my friends.